Well, I brought with me a bag of old things, a couple things that um, might be tempted to throw away, but I'm going to see if we can figure out a way to maybe bring new life, new uses out of these things. I've got some junk mail, which we typically throw away, but what's another alternative? You use a notepad, you can recycle the paper and it could be used possibly for uh, uh, drawing paper or you could use it to, to write notes on. Absolutely, that's one thing, all right. Got an old camera here, it doesn't work anymore. Um, but uh, we don't, you know, everybody's got a camera on their phone now, so you don't really need it. But what are a couple of things we could do with this? There's a battery inside. What can I do with that? Recycle the battery. You know, somebody with more electronic knowledge than me could probably use some of the parts. You know, you could strip it down, possibly, especially with larger electronics. So, you know, you could find another use. Or uh, maybe if you have a camera that does work, the lens is probably still good. You could use that. It's one of the, it has a removable lens. I mean, there, there are some options there. Got an old T-shirt. I've uh, had this T-shirt for a while, and I've just about, and I've got glass in there, obviously. Um, <laughs> I've just about used it as much as I can. I've used it as a work shirt, and it's just about to fall apart. So what's the I could throw it away. Don't really. I could give it to thrift store, but it's in pretty rough shape. What, what did somebody say over here? I could wash my nasty truck with it. That's right. That's right. It's cleaner than it was. But yes, I could wash my nasty truck. But yes, take this and use it, tear it, use it for rags, for cleaning, whether it's your truck or not. I kind of like the fact that my truck's dirty, but that's okay. Um, but you could use it for just work rags, right? I mean, cleaning around the house, shop rags, you know, grease rag or whatever. Uh, we have this cup that somebody gave us, and it's not, it's an old 1978 uh, uh, Mickey Mouse. Um, but it's not dishwasher friendly, so that means it's not going to get used at our, at our, uh, yeah, 78's not that old. I hear you, I hear you. But since it's not dishwasher friendly, it's not going to get used at my house, so I got a decision to make. Do I throw it away, or what's, what else could I use it for? What's that? Paper clips, yeah, what else? Pens, could hold pens, yeah, put it on your desk. What? Sell it down. I just got laughed at because I called it old, so I don't know if I'm going to say almost, but you, you know, there are, there are other uses. I got something similar. I've got a jar that's empty. Um, I immediately think about like my dad had jars full of screws and nuts and bolts in his shop. I mean, there's multi uses if you don't want to use it for, for, I mean, coffee, put coffee in there. I mean, it's a, a candy, put candy, stick it on your desk or whatever. And one more thing, I've got an old toy here. I promised my youngest I really wouldn't give it away or throw it away, but, you know, he's had it for a long time, and so, you know, I could throw it away, or what else could I do? Could give it to a kid that doesn't have a toy or something, right? I mean, all of these things, what is the point here? Well, we have a lot of things that we might be tempted to throw away, but you can bring new life out of old things, right? Something we might consider useless or even dead. I mean, this camera's dead, dead as a doornail. But, you know, somebody else could take it and bring it back to life. And that's really what we're talking about today, is taking things that, that some might consider useless uh, or hopeless and bringing new life. That's what Jesus does. He's all about taking the old and making it new, taking the dead and raising it to life. And that's what we're looking at in the fifth I Am statement today. As we continue our series on the I Am statements of Jesus, we have learned that the I Am statements of Jesus declare who he is, 
and who he is drastically changes who I am. Greg Matt said, the I am changes who I am. And if you understand who Jesus truly is, it's going to change you. He declares himself by saying, I am. He's referring back to God revealing himself to Moses as the I am. And so he is stating very clearly that he is God. And so if you hear these statements, you have to make a decision. We all have to make the decision. Who is Jesus to me? Is he really who he says he is? Because he's either telling the truth or he's lying. He's either God or he's not. There is no in-between. So we have to make a decision for ourselves. But in the book of John, we see that he shows who he is through miracles, but he also declares who he is through these I am statements. He is declaring that he's God. Now, as we come to today's statement, a sobering truth is that one day we will all face death, right? One day we will either die or Jesus will come back. I mean, one, one, of the, one way or the other. And that's not necessarily a happy thought to start the message today, but it is a reality. It's something we all share in common, isn't it? I mean, we all share that. That's a human experience that everyone shares. But for the believer, that doesn't, that's not the end. Death is not the end. It is merely the beginning. In Christ, he makes all things new. He's about bringing life out of death. And so... Yes, death is something that none of us probably look forward to, but we don't have to fear it because of who he declares himself to be in this fifth I am statement. Now, an unbelieving culture looks at death with hesitation and fear, Uh, uncertainty even, uh, or at the very least, fear uh, at the most. Uh, After losing her husband and her sister, uh, within a few months of each other, you've probably heard of Katie Couric, a former CBS news anchor. She began to think through her own faith, and, and she said this. She said, I'm very interested in exploring a more spiritual side of me, and I'm in the process of doing that, both formally and informally. What she says next is very telling. I really envy those who have a steadfast, unwavering faith, because I think it is probably so comforting and helpful during difficult times. An unbelieving world looks at death with confusion, uncertainty, fear, but believers can look at death from a different perspective. During an interview before the release of Bucket List, Jack Nicholson said this. He said, I used to live so freely. The mantra of my generation was be your own man. I always said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want. I'm going to live. I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. I chose my own way. That was my philosophical position well into my 50s. As I've gotten older, he says, I've had to adjust. We all want to go on forever, don't we? We fear the unknown. Everybody goes to that wall, yet nobody knows what's on the other side. We fear death. Well, that's not entirely true, not true at all, actually. We can know. We don't have to, as believers, we don't have to fear death. We do know what's on the other side. We know uh, what lies ahead because Jesus has revealed himself. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to fear death. And this is the truth that Jesus communicates in this fifth I am statement. John chapter 11 today, as we continue these statements, verses 25 and 26, the story of Lazarus, this verse comes right in the middle, and we're going to look at the the story today. But in the midst of, of this saga, the death of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus reveals to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who believes or lives and believes in me will never die, ever. 
Do you believe this? That's a question we have to answer, all of us. Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is as the resurrection and life? Because here's the truth. How you think about death determines how you live. How you view death will determine how you live in the present. If this is all there is, your life is going to look very different than if you're investing in eternity. Um, You can live a life now driven by purpose and joy that goes beyond the temporal, or you can live in the moment, and all that you have is all that you'll ever have. We can have freedom and perspective because and security because of what Christ did. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this, in this world. I mean, we need to have an eye toward eternity constantly. Jesus gives us great purpose for today because of who he is as the resurrection and the life, because we know we can know for certain what eternity holds. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but we can know where our eternity lies. We can have confidence in that. And when we look at the story of of Lazarus, Jesus, this story gives us parameters for how to think about death in light of who Jesus is as the resurrection and the life. He's showing a mastery over death, a victory over death, and, and life and death. And he also, the life that he offers are, is, is the life that you are seeking, whether you realize it or not. It is what your soul is longing for. It's what you're searching for. So he invites us to consider the, full, the life full of purpose, full of meaning, full of joy, full of security that he offers through this story. And in this story, we first learn there's some requirements. There are, again, parameters. There's expectations that Jesus has if we are going to be followers of his. There are expectations. And one of the things, first things that Jesus, we can see is that he expects brokenness. And there again, you know, we talk about death. We talk about brokenness. Probably not two things that we like to think about, like to consider. But Jesus does expect brokenness. If we're going to come to him and receive this life that he has to offer, we have to be willing to be broken humble before him. He begins, we see the account of Lazarus with the statement in verse 1 of John chapter 11. A man named uh, was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and sister Martha. That, that simple phrase had to be a gut punch to all the people that loved him, all the people that knew him, Jesus himself who loved him. I mean, Jesus knew what this was going to end, but we see him later uh, grieving over sin, and we see him angry uh, because of the existence of death. And sin, but uh, you know, for his his sisters especially, this you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you've heard that, and many of us have, especially in the last year and a half, where someone you love is sick, maybe even sick to the point of death. That's you know, in some ways, that's harder than you facing it yourself, right? It's difficult, and so this was a gut punch to them uh, to have this, and it wasn't it wasn't just a cold. He was sick to the point of death. I mean, this was serious. And regardless of whose name is at the end of that sentence, if you hear that sentence, it, it, somebody you care about, uh, it, is, it, it is a gut punch. It is difficult to take. And our faith is going to be tested by sickness, by grief, by pain, by suffering. If you live long enough, your faith is going to be tested by these things. And that's the nature of the broken world we live in. We live in a broken, sinful world, and pain and suffering exists because sin exists. But just a few chapters later, Jesus speaks directly to our pain in John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We have peace in the midst of the pain. 
You, have, you will have suffering, he says, in this world, but be courageous or take heart. I have conquered the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He's conquered death. He is the giver of life. He is, within him, there is new life. And so, even though we will have pain and suffering and different people to differing degrees, we, will, we can take heart. We can be courageous because of who he is. Because of Jesus, sickness and death do not have the final word in our lives. Uh, he has given us victory over death through his death and resurrection, as we'll see unfold in this story, beautifully illustrated his power over death. And this truth is revealed to us in a very, a very practical way, especially those who witnessed it, right, who were there. And even though Lazarus did die from illness, this illness, death did not have the final word. Jesus did. And he raised, we'll see, he raises Lazarus from the dead. But when we face trials, difficulties, sickness, death, there are some common responses, um, and one of them is bitterness. You know, one of the responses that we should not take to pain and suffering and grief, grief, but is very tempting to take, is bitterness toward God. You know, how could a God who claims to be good allow this pain and suffering? And that's, listen, that, if we're all honest, that's something that we wrestle with at some point in our lives. When someone we love or we ourselves are facing a trial, a, a sickness, a death, a loss, of any kind. How can God allow this to happen? And the temptation, if, if we're not careful, is to, to grow bitter toward God as a result of that. But there's a truth that we see. We see it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 25, that we're, what are we building our lives on? And the reality is bitterness toward God shows faith that's built on the shaky foundation of sand, while faith is, is, you know, that true faith is built on the solid foundation of rock. And even in those times when the storms are raging in life and those times come, we can still be firm. We may be confused. We may not know why things are happening. Uh, we may doubt from time to time. I mean, but in the end, we have, if we have a solid foundation of faith, we can trust in, in who God is we can trust in his love and we can trust in his provision even when life is falling apart or seems like it is all around us. We can have that foundation. So the question is, what are you building your life on? Do you have a solid foundation or is it shaky? Because if it's shaky when those storms come, you will fall apart. But if you have the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and are building on that, you know, if you look at that story, there's, a, there's building that goes. It's not, yes, I'm saved, but am I building my life on that foundation? Am I growing in my faith? Is my faith, my relationship with Christ going deeper every day? Am I surrounding myself with people who will hold me accountable and disciple me and pour into me? And am I pouring into others? Am I digging into the Word of God to d uncover the, more of who He is as He reveals Himself to me each day? That's what it takes to build our lives on the foundation that will not fall, that will not shake. Sometimes trials remind us that we've drifted in our faith. That's one of the purposes. And maybe it's a calling back to... Uh, having Christ in the center of your life uh, and, and the, the shakiness that exists is, you know, the proper response is to run back to him. And sometimes that's the purpose. Um, this sounds crazy, but our aim in the midst of trials should be that we land in brokenness. Why? In brokenness, we surrender to God's will and rest in our inability to handle the pain and the suffering that we face. And there, when we think about that, our inability to handle the pain and the suffering, that's a scary thought, but in the midst of it, 
when you do surrender and you admit that you can't handle it, there's also security and peace in that if you know the God who can handle it. If you have a relationship and your foundation is Jesus Christ, there's a sense of, of security in releasing that because we never really have control to begin with. And admitting that and, and submitting in brokenness before Christ, there's security in that because that's a step toward him. And that is a step closer to him. And the closer we are to Jesus, the more secure we're going to feel. You know, there, whether we begin or eventually end with brokenness, you know, hopefully we get there before a battle with God and not the result of losing a battle with God. Because if you, if you take him on, you're going to lose that battle. If you're, if you're running away from him and you are his, he will not let you run without consequences. Uh, there, so hopefully we turn to him voluntarily in brokenness. But whether we begin there or eventually end there, brokenness is the place where the Lord begins to stretch us and grow us in our faith. It's the first step to having our relationship, our knowledge of God deepened. Uh, the point of brokenness is when we realize the Lord's sovereignty even in the midst of trial. We don't have to have all the answers. It'd be nice if we did. Sometimes even though that wouldn't, wouldn't make things better in the, the grand scheme of things and pain and suffering, but understanding that God does and that he's in control and that he has a plan and trusting in that, brokenness is the first step to really acknowledging and living in the peace that is God as a sovereign God and him, him being in control. A broken heart before the Lord is a cry for his strength to carry us when we can't carry ourselves. And we see it's, a, it's like the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10 and 17. God create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humble heart. So in our brokenness, the Lord begins this incredible work of redemption and restoration and the faith of Mary and Martha in this story uh, of Lazarus was tested with one simple phrase. You know, the one when he, they communicate to Jesus, the one you love is sick. When they when their brother became ill to the point of death, their faith was tested in a very real way. And more than again, more than a cold, sick to death. This was serious. And seeing the situation get worse, what's the first thing they do, or what do we see in this story that they do? They turn to Jesus because he's the only one that's got the answer to this. They've seen him heal. They know his ability to heal. And so they turn to him. In verse 3, the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, they, they knew how much Jesus loved their brother. They knew he cared for him. They were confident that he could heal him. And as they reach out, they begin their journey of trusting God during the midst of trials, during the midst of suffering. They're taking a step in the right direction. They're not running away. You know, it's not bitterness. It's not anger. Uh, they are turning toward Christ, and that is a step in the right direction in the midst of suffering and testing. And when, they, when God tests our faith, as he will, he does. He's testing their faith, and we see this unfold. He will test your faith, and when he does, what he requires, what Jesus requires from us is dependence. Uh, you know, we have to depend on God, even when life doesn't make sense, even when life hurts. We have to trust from day to day, and, and the reality is, and this is something that we have a hard time with, sometimes we see in this story, sometimes we turn to God, and sometimes he waits, and it's in that moment, in that t period of time, 
I've taken that step toward you, Jesus, and you're just not acting yet. You're not doing what I think you ought to do. You're not moving in my life the way that I think you, you're not resolving this issue, whatever that issue is. And they turn to Jesus and what does he do? Does he come immediately? No. And you have to, you, I mean, they, they know he can heal him. They know that he loves Lazarus. And so you have to imagine what's going through their minds. Why, if you truly love our brother, we've seen it, why are you waiting? You could take care of this in an instant. And as we see, he didn't even have to come to him to take care of it, but he did. He waited, and he in turn makes them wait. And it's in those moments of waiting, uh, you know, this situation, again, life or death it, it, and the lack of, of movement, it's in those moments of waiting, though, that we learn to depend on God. See, this was bigger than just, you know, Lazarus' physical well-being or their emotional well-being in that moment. Um, you know, what, what Jesus is trying to teach them is his purpose is higher than ours. His ways are beyond our ways, his mind beyond our mind. And so God may be waiting because there's something greater he has planned for you. And that's the case here. He's trying to teach them a lesson that, and all of those who cared about Lazarus, a lesson that they would not be able to learn any other way, truly. And so there's dependence that he's trying to create. His delay was very intentional. Don't think that Jesus just got busy and distracted or that he couldn't get there in time. No, this was intentional. We see God is working through this situation and is in, intentional in everything that he does here. He's trying to teach them something. It wasn't what was doing what was most preferred for them physically or emotionally at that moment. It wasn't what was probably uh, best from our perspective for Lazarus in that moment in, in making him uh, well and, and not having to suffer through what he was suffering or them suffering, watching their brother suffer. As difficult as this may be to hear, we have to, we have to come to terms with the fact that in any and every situation, Jesus is going to do what brings the Father the most glory. God is going to act in a way that brings glory and honor to himself. And that may sound arrogant and, and, and boastful or whatever words you want to put in there, but the reality is he is the God of the universe and he deserves glory and honor. And, and he is going, God is incredibly God-centered and we should be too. And, and even at the expense at times of our own comfort, our circumstances not being the way we think they should be, in, in any and every circumstance, he's going to work in our lives in a way that will bring glory to himself. And we should be just as passionate about the glory of God as he is. But he still cares for his own. And in the end, what we find is in bringing glory to himself, he also is doing what's best for us. Because, you know, being in the center of his will, whatever that is, ultimately and in the long run, as we, and as we see in this story, is what's best. It may not be the easiest. It definitely won't be pain-free. We will have to endure trials and suffering. But in the end, through that experience, God transforms us and molds us into something that we would not be outside of those experiences that he uses. He doesn't cause sin and pain, brokenness in our world. That's a result of sin. But you better believe he uses it in us as we are broken and marred by sin to, to recreate that image that he created us with, the image of God. 
It's through all circumstances that he works to make us who he wants us to be. And in this situation, he's teaching Mary and Martha and all of those who care deeply for Lazarus dependence that they could not have learned any other way. And in doing so, he's glorifying God. He knows his friend is suffering. He knows that people are in pain. He knows that people are hurting, but he's focused on glorifying God, the Father. And in it all, when Jesus, I mean, we, we read in the story, Lazarus dies before Jesus gets there. Um, we're reminded of the consequences of living in a sinful world, the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We know that that's what we deserve, and we know that death is a result of the fact that sin exists in our world. And one day there won't be any sickness or death, pain and suffering, but we're not there yet. And we, we know that all too well now, don't we? You know, in, in the midst of everything that we've experienced uh, in a pandemic and just life itself. I mean, we know death is, is a part of our existence, part of our life, part of our world that we live in. It is a consequence of sin. It may not, your death may not be the consequence of something you did directly, but death exists because when sin entered the world, so did death. That's the wages of sin, the payment for sin. And Lazarus dies. John uses an interesting word to describe Jesus' reaction in the original language uh, to Lazarus' death in verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry and his spirit was moved, deeply moved. You know, a few verses, we see the shortest uh, verse in the Bible. Everybody knows it. What is it? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. There you go. It's probably the first, other than John three sixteen, it's the first Bible verse you learn as a kid because it's easy to learn. I got two Bible verses now. As a kid, you know, you want to learn more, and it's easy to learn. Jesus wept. But you know, there, I think he's, I believe he's grieving over, you know, the consequences of sin. He's empathizing with those. I mean, he knows he's going to bring Lazarus back. It's not that, you know, and maybe he's grieving because he knows where he's about to bring Lazarus from. You know, we, we don't know all of the circumstances there. And, but we do know that, that he he's, he's weeps, and I think that's a weep, uh, cry of empathy. Here, though, he's angry. And it's a righteous anger because of sin and, the, and, and what sin does. And he sees the world that he created. He sees the people that he created. And this is the consequence of sin. And he's angry and has every right to be. He's righteous. He's holy. It's not an anger that leads to sin. It's righteous anger. Similar to what we see, I believe, in the temple when he's turning the tables over. This is the emotion that Jesus feels. It's the result of sin that separates us from God. Death shows what we deserve as a result of our sin. In John 11, though, Lazarus' death, death gives us a great hope in revealing that Jesus has defeated death as the last enemy. Death no longer has mastery, control over us, because he's achieved victory for us. When we, death will come, but death has now lost its grip because of Christ. He is the resurrection and the life, and because of that, we don't have to fear. D.L. Moody, and you've probably heard this, you know, he was a young preacher, first funeral he was ever asked to preach, he searched the Gospels looking for how, you know, Jesus handled funerals, a sermon that he preached at a funeral. He didn't find any. And the reason is because every time Jesus encountered death, death couldn't coexist where he was. People came back to life. He didn't preach funerals. He brought people back from the dead. And this is an example. Jesus and death, you know, they, they may be at odds, but death loses because Jesus is victorious over death. He has power over death. Jesus always wins. 
when it comes to life and death, when it comes to Jesus versus death. And this is why the New Testament often refers to the believer when they die as falling asleep because it's temporary. It's a passageway. It's, it's you know, from temporary existence to eternal life in, in Jesus Christ in heaven. And Mary and Martha may not have realized it, but Lazarus falling asleep is setting the stage for a miracle here. It's setting the stage for something incredible. And, and we too, we glorify God. We're setting the stage for a miracle in our lives when we trust him during difficult times and when we depend on him and we're broken before him. We're putting ourselves in a position to experience him work in our lives, whether he does exactly what we want or not. Even if he hadn't brought Lazarus back from the dead, Jesus still would have glorified God in the life of Mary and Martha. I mean, he, there, there still would have been a miracle in their lives if they depended on him and trusted him through that difficult time. We're setting the stage for a miracle when we trust in him. Our focus and dependence on him, for one thing, is a powerful testimony to the world that's watching us when we suffer when we suffer with hope, when we suffer with peace, and when we suffer pointing toward God and trusting him in the midst of our suffering, that's a testimony to the watching world. But it's also about what he does in the midst of our lives and within our lives in the midst of our trusting and depending on him and and suffering. Jesus was 100 miles away when he got the news about Lazarus. When he arrived, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. In her despair, Martha runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. But his delay, what, what she doesn't even realize in the moment is that his delay has created a greater dependence in her on him. A greater, and we see that in her running to him at his feet. I mean, in her mind, there's, there's, there's nothing. I mean, he's gone. And so the only thing she can do is fall at the feet of Jesus. Brokenness, total dependence. And I, I can't give you all the answers if you're suffering right now. I can't tell you all the whys. I can't tell you all the reasons. But one thing I can tell you is that this is what Jesus wants from you. He wants brokenness. And he wants total dependence from you. Because that's what it takes. A complete and total trust is what it takes on our part to put ourselves in a position for Jesus to do the work in your life that he truly wants for you. And until we learn that, and it's a process, listen, it's not an instantaneous thing. That's why these experiences are necessary, because we're stubborn, right? Remember, we're sheep, we're stubborn, we tend to go astray. And sometimes it takes these dramatic, life-changing, difficult experiences to get our attention and to force us into dependence, but he wants that. And sometimes Jesus tests us to produce brokenness and increase our dependence. However, if we are dependent on him through testing, he will eventually give us understanding. You know, grief looks different for everybody, um, there are some commonalities, but people move through the process of grief differently. Um, I've seen it in my time as a pastor. I, you know, you've heard of the five stages of grief. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, you know, getting some sort of normalcy in the midst of pain helps. Um, you know, the five stages, denial. First, you live in denial that it happened or that it's real. Rage, anger. We tend to get angry with life, angry at God even. Um, bargaining with God. Depression is the fourth stage. The fifth is acceptance. What I found is a lot of people, you know, some people do move through those stages, but a lot of people bounce around those stages. You know, they go back and forth. You know, one day I'm angry, one day, you know, I'm, I'm accepting. And it's a process. It's different for everybody. And, and how you move through that uh, is going to depend on your personality. It's going to depend on your relationship with God. It's going to depend on a lot of things. Um, but 
One thing that we tend to do, you know, the, the world says run from grief, right? You know, busy yourself, fill your schedule. Don't, don't you know, all you, you just stay busy. Don't think about it. And, and that'll help you deal with it. But you're just delaying the inevitable in that. You know, we fill our schedules hoping that, that we won't be fa- forced to face the, that we can escape the pain that we're feeling in the midst of trials, in the midst of loss, whatever it is. Some people look to other things. They look to substances. You know, they might try to fill their, that void with something that makes them feel better in the moment, but eventually that, that will wear off. Overworking or just giving up, you know, just giving up on life. Succumbing to the temptation to give up. Our culture tells us to push away grief and charge forward in life. But in the rush of doing that, the casualty is that death is not dealt with, grief is not dealt with, and, and the experience of God comforting you through that is not, is not dealt with, is not experienced. We drift backward instead of moving forward. As believers in Christ, we have an inc- incomparable hope. We, we can grieve toward God. We can grieve toward eternity. We don't have to grieve as those without hope. We can grieve toward God. And our hope is secure in the resurrection and the life of Jesus. Martha, broken, distraught, sees Jesus coming and runs toward him. Verse 21, we see, then Martha said to Jesus, falls at his feet. Then she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You have it even now. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Currently, in the moment, here, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha looks to Jesus for comfort, and she's grieving toward God. She's not running away. She's grieving toward God, and it's a lesson for all of us. Even though she doesn't completely understand, she doesn't know what's about to happen, and she she gives indications she believes he can do it, right? But she doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't have all the answers, but she's, she's taken another step in the right direction. She's grieving toward God. We see her dealing with what she's going through, admitting what she's going through. And as believers, we all share the assurance that we, when we leave this world, we step into the presence of God. And so in the, in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain, we can glorify God by grieving toward God. And, and even in the worst of circumstances, we can trust in him because we know that he is the resurrection and the life. And we know that we have, we have hope and assurance beyond this, this, whatever this is that we're facing. Death does not have the final victory. And when we look to God in grief, we are making a decision to be healed by the one who allowed the pain and suffering to take place. Doesn't cause it, but he allows it, which means there's a reason for it. And this this can be extremely difficult. It's easy to sit up here and say this and preach this, but in the moment it's hard. When, When life is hurting and when you are hurting and it's not going the way you think it should and you're suffering or somebody you love is suffering, it's difficult. But, but when we do make a decision to grieve toward God, we're putting ourselves in a position to be healed by him through that and to have him work in our lives. And it may just seem sometimes that God has this cul-de-sac that he leads us into to make us hurt just so he can heal us. 
uh, you know, just so he can show off his power or whatever. It may feel like that. It may feel like God's playing games with your life. But the truth of the matter is, suffering is a unique opportunity to increase the depth of our knowledge of God that we can't gain any other way. We, we learn things about God in suffering that we don't learn when life is good. We have a tendency, just like as sheep, we have a tendency to go our own way. We have a tendency as humans to think that we can handle it when things are going well. And we get a little bit too self-confident sometimes. And, 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 and even without that, in the midst of suffering, pain produces depth for those who run to Jesus in their suffering. Suffering, taking our grief to Jesus produces a depth of our soul and spiritual understanding that only comes in the darkness of night when there is nowhere else to look. When there's at the feet of Jesus, when you've tried everything else and nothing else has worked, because sometimes that's what we do, right? We try everything else. There are things that you learn in that moment that you won't learn outside of the darkness that exists in pain and suffering. Our knowledge of God has increased. Our perspective shifts in those moments. When life is not good, we're not taking a whole lot of joy in the here and now, are we? So it's easier to look toward eternity. And that's one of the things that God wants is for us to look to eternity. And Martha looks to Jesus for peace because she knows that, that he has the power to heal the sick and the blind. But Jesus claims to be more than that. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Who Jesus is changes who we are. And who he is is the resurrection and life. Knowing the end result, knowing that, that there's hope, there's assurance, there's life beyond this existence, knowing that our eternity is secure will definitely change who you are and who, how you live in the present. It'll give you strength to face things you never thought you could. It'll give you peace that you cannot comprehend with your mind. It gives you assurance and it gives you perspective. It gives you understanding of God and God alone. Our culture says run from grief. Our culture says grieve alone. Guess what? God also gives us a cloud of witnesses around us, a church family and believers that, that will walk alongside us and help us when we can't help ourselves. One of the reasons God's allowing you to go through the pain you're going through is so that you can use it later to help somebody else who's going to go through something similar. And we have each other. We have a family. The ministry of presence is powerful. I'll never forget uh, church I pastored in Rimlap. One of our members was killed on a on a uh, in an ATV accident in the church parking lot. It was Memorial Day, I think. It was it was a holiday. I was at home. I get the call. It's in the all I was told was that this person uh, he had, he was in an accident in the parking lot. It was serious. He lived right up the road from the church. We get there and it was it was a head wound. I mean, it was a head injury. And and you could we knew immediately that it wasn't going to be good. They had the helicopter fly in, took him to, uh, to UAB, and all night long, into the wee hours of the morning, I was there with the family. Our associate pastor was there with me, and we just, we just waited. And, and, you know, there was nothing anybody could do. They were doing, UAB is the place you go, right, if you have a head injury, but even the doctors were preparing them, listen, there's, there's, this is not going to end well. And God can do anything he wants, right? He can bring life out of death, but we knew that was coming. And there were several moments through that, that period where I'm sitting there thinking, man, there's, there's got to be something I can say here. But the reality, all I could do was stand there with them, pray with them when I got the opportunity, hug them when I could, and cry with them. In the end, he, he passed, and there was nothing I could do to change that. There was nothing I could say to make that any better. All I could do was be there. 
And the ministry of presence is powerful. You know, there are going to be times where words just aren't enough. There's nothing you can say to make it better, but just pointing them to Jesus, loving them with the love of Christ is all you can do. And don't shortchange that, though, all right? You know, being there and surrounding yourself with people in the midst of grief and helping people grieve toward God is the best thing you can do. Being an arrow that points to the Lord for the short term and the long term. Understanding and dependence. He wants us, he wants to grow us, test us, and the result of that can be understanding. And what we see through this in our lives when we experience suffering is that, that, that Jesus grants us an eternal perspective. That's what we need in life. Listen, life is hard. It's tough. There's great times. There's those mountaintops, but boy, those valleys are sure are deep sometimes, aren't they? And, and in those moments, both on the top and the bottom, we need to maintain an eternal perspective. And when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, it changed everything for her. She was immediately reminded that life wasn't over for her brother. And this statement changes life and death for us too. If we listen, if we accept him, believe that he is who he says he is, and accept the life that he offers. It gives us freedom to live life with purpose because we know that death is not the end. It's a passageway. Jesus' declaration is our foundation for this life. That that what we have now, whether good or bad, is it gives us perspective because we know it's only temporary. We're investing in something more. We're investing in eternity. Imagine the scene. Jesus stands before this tomb and and he, he shouts, Lazarus, come out. Of course, he's specific. You've heard this too, because if he hadn't been, everybody in the graves would have come out, right? I mean, that's just who he is. He is the resurrection and the life, but specifically, he tells Lazarus to come forward, and what happens to everybody's... And I just, you know, we see that played out in Easter pageants where everybody's, you know, shouting and celebrating, but if it's me, my jaw's on the floor, and I'm standing there in silence because I can't believe what I'm seeing. Right. I don't know what the reaction was. I mean, it could have been either or a mixture of both. Who knows who all was there? But we, we know that what had just happened was amazing and something only God could do. In this moment, if you believe this story, you cannot accept that Jesus is a mere man, right? I mean, somebody who has power over death, who shouts a name, And suddenly, a man that's been dead four days comes out of a grave. He's now a walking testimony to the fact that Jesus is the I Am. He says he's the resurrection and the life, and he proves it by his actions. Raising Lazarus was about more than one man's life, though. It's a great story. It's an amazing story, but it's about you and me, too. It's about our lives. He's preparing us for his death on the cross here. He's preparing us for what he had come to do. He's, he's, this is, he's ramping up to the cross here in the resurrection. This is an illustration. He's illustrating. He's showing his power over death to prepare his disciples and those us who would come after them to accept what he's about to do. He's preparing us for what we're about to witness through his own death and resurrection, the ultimate victory over death for all of us. This is more than just one man. It's about everyone who would follow Christ and everyone who is forced to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question is going to determine the course of your life in eternity. And so we, we, it's about more than just one experience. By using the word resurrection, he's not talking about the end of time. He's talking about himself. 
the true resurrection for Lazarus. Yeah, he brought Lazarus back, but Lazarus died again. He's talking about more than just what happens in the moment here. For Lazarus, for Martha, for Mary, for us, for all those there, for us included, a relationship with Jesus offers life instead of death. If you just want to bottom line it, there it is. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you want life, it's found in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, you've probably heard me. I've shared this story before. I know I have, but it made such a huge impact on my life at an early age, at a young age. By the time I got, you know, as an older child, a young teenager, my great-grandmother, her name was Annie Hansen. Our youngest is partly named for her because of her faith, partly named for um, uh, Mandy's grandmother. Um, but, uh, you know, she just, I mean, she, she was a rock solid woman of faith in our family, prayer warrior. And, uh, I, I, I have memories of her as a child. As I said, as she got older, she, she got dementia, Alzheimer's and, and she was not herself. But I remember very young, probably, I was probably four or five years old. It's one of the earliest memories I have. And, and one of the, the earliest memories certainly I have with her, other than the fact that she made incredible rice pudding, y'all. I, <laughs> has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but it was good. We've got the recipe. Gracie does a great job with it now, by the way. Anyway, I'm sitting on her front porch. She's keeping me. My mom worked at a flower shop near her house, and she was watching me. We were sitting on her front porch, and, and I don't remember what we were doing, snapping peas or something. I don't, I don't know, but she, she, I remember her telling me this. She said, you know, Alan, sometimes I sit on this front porch, and I look into the clouds, and I just sit here. By this time, um, my great-granddad was either bedridden or had passed away. I can't remember, but um, she said, I just sit here and I wait. And I say, is today going to be the day that I see the clouds open up and Jesus comes to take me home? And the reason that made such a huge impact on my life is because I didn't understand it then, but I, I've understood it more as I gr I've grown. And now that I know Christ, she was always looking for eternity. She lived her life. She didn't have an easy life either, by the way. She lived her life anticipating that moment, and it showed in the way that she lived her life. And it taught me about eternal perspective. It taught me about, you know, life and the importance of looking beyond the temporary and not taking too much security in the here and now, about the fact that there's more than just this temporary existence. And it taught me about faith. It wasn't just anyone she was looking for. It was Jesus. She spoke his name. I can still hear her voice as she says that, even as a small, small child. And I pray that I have that same perspective in my life. Cal Calvin Miller said this. He said, death is not a threat to genuine life. It is, but a deep, it is but a paper tiger that is no longer free to terrorize us once we know the truth about the outcome of the cross. Death is but a temporary inconvenience that separates our smaller living from our greater being. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, death is a passageway to the presence of God for the believer. It's not the last chapter. It is the beginning of an eternal chapter that never ends. Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, conquered death completely and for all time. Through his death and his resurrection, the heart that truly understands the magnitude of who Jesus is as the resurrection and the life cannot help but live differently with that kind of a sure foundation. In your pain, wherever you are, 
whatever you have gone through, are going through, or I guarantee you, you will go through in the future, in your pain, in your suffering, in your confusion, in your unanswered questions that we all have about life and about things that are happening, knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you will truly accept that, and if you will be broken and dependent upon him, if you will live your life according to that truth, it will change everything for you. I can't describe it for you. I can't explain it to you in words. It's something you can only experience through trusting God from day to day, day after day after day after day. His faithfulness, his love, his peace, his assurance. That's what he's offering here. Eternal life. Not even the worst that we could possibly imagine. Death itself has a grip on us. Because even if that comes for the believer, guess what? The next face you see is Jesus Christ. And there's no greater security than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have assurance in the midst of a broken and sinful world. There's so much that we can look around and point to, to say is wrong, to say is difficult, to say is messed up about the world we live in. And we would be absolutely right in doing that. We live in a sinful, broken world, but you offer us life that's about more than the temporary You offer us life of meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in this life because of what we are building toward, what we are looking forward to, and that is eternity with you that's only possible because, Jesus, you died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and were raised from the death, conquering death for all of us. But we have to accept that. And if there's anyone here today watching at home who hasn't received that gift of salvation that's only available by trusting in you and receiving it from you, then I pray that right now that they would do what Martha did and fall at your feet either literally or spiritually in their hearts and cry out to you for salvation, to come into their lives and forgive them of sin, knowing that you will, that they would experience the peace of eternal life. For those of us who know you, as we go through life and face the ups and downs, the trials, the suffering, the good times, the the times of celebration, the times of mourning, I pray that each opportunity we would take to fall at your feet in greater dependence, in greater trust, that we would celebrate towards you and we would grieve toward you, putting ourselves in a position to be stretched, to grow in you and closer to you. Lord, just speak to our hearts in this moment. How do you want us to respond? May we respond in obedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?